Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. And I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. We're podcasting from Northeast Ohio. This is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of a series on demystifying policy-relevant research. We're talking with academics throughout Northeast Ohio in a range of fields, from public health scholars, sociologists, criminologists, political scientists, and more. We're trying to unpack how expertise is developed, how research gets made, and why this is policy-relevant work. This is a collaborative series with support from the Northeast Ohio chapter of the Scholar Strategy Network. The Northeast Ohio chapter of the Scholar Strategy Network was launched in 2017 to bring together local university-based scholars who are committed to using and sharing research to improve policy and strengthen democracy. If you want to be involved in the podcast and get behind-the-scenes content about each episode, head on over to patreon.com slash growingdemocracyoh. You sure can. Build, help us build some more bridges. Yes. This episode is 100% about building bridges across yeah. communities. That was my that was my uh, slick segue into talking about <laughs> bridge building. I mean, that was this entire interview, right? Was the theme, and I, and I don't know that that our guest intended for that to be the case, but uh, uh, it was so clear, uh, you know, to to both of us after getting done that this was about. Like an, it's an anti-silo uh, yeah. approach, right? Right. From from being an you know an interdisciplinary scholar who sees their research cut across disciplines to you know seeing their community engaged work just as much as a part of who they are as an academic as it is a part of their civic identity um, to you know being able to see their research as relevant across spaces from like hyper-local to state-level um, committees. And, and so it was a really amazing way to think about research as policy-relevant. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think even more than just policy-relevant, which obviously I, I fully agree that it was, that it's relevant to so many different um, layers of the community, right? Yeah, Whether yeah. that's people that are in the in in the court system or people that are in the community or people that are in a, a slightly narrower university community or just to the researcher themselves and how mm-hmm. their own work actually um, influences their identity. And is informed by all of those spaces <laughs> that they show up, which I think is just another way of really thinking about how, you know, as academics, we often think of ourselves as um, as separate from, right? I mean, even in the language we use, right? We have community, university, um, and that we are also a part of the community. Um, yeah. And so, you know, being embedded and connected and, 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 and developing those, you know, genuine relationships um, with community partners is, is so valuable. Yeah, so it was a, it's a fun journey, and I think our listeners will really enjoy this episode. Absolutely. So today we have with us Dr. Wendy Regacy. She is a professor of criminology at Cleveland State University and also serves as the director of Cleveland State University's Criminology Research Center. She's a member of the Cleveland Homicide Commission Service Provider Review and the Cuyahoga County Domestic Violence Fatality Review Committee. 
Dr. Regassi is the former editor of the journal Homicide Studies and previously served on the Research Advisory Council of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Her research interests include homicide, homicide followed by suicide, intimate partner violence, uh, criminal investigations, violence prevention, and program evaluation. Her most recent project includes serving as a local evaluator for the federally funded Domestic Violence Homicide Prevention Demonstration Initiative and working with the Ohio Victim Witness Association on identifying best practices for working with family members of homicide victims. She is co-author with Terrence Meath of Rethinking Homicide, Exploring the Structure and Process Underlying Deadly Situations, published by Cambridge University Press. All right. So uh, with us today is Wendy Regacy. Uh, Wendy, I know that Ashley just read your bio. And so uh, this is always the part where people go, well, you just read my bio. But I personally think that you always have a more interesting uh, version of your of your story. So would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, sure. I'd be happy to. So um, I'm actually originally from Canada. I uh, went to graduate school at the University of Toronto. And my background is as a sociologist with a particular interest in studying crime. And I came to Cleveland State University 20 years ago now, which just seems like a long time. Um, and I basically spent my most of my career, if not all of it, I would say, uh, with studying violent crime. I'm particularly interested uh, in the offenses of homicide and intimate partner violence. Um, so, you know, I've spent a lot of my career conducting what I would describe as sort of uh, traditional academic research. But over the years, I've become uh, more involved in working with the community and with our local criminal justice organizations. And, you know, I've been uh, a professor here. So, we, you know, we have a criminology program. And so I've been teaching undergraduates and students in our master's programs, um, either teaching courses like in the general field of criminology, in intimate or interpersonal violence more specifically, and then teaching the dreaded statistics courses that <laughs> students <Yay>! are. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, you know, that pretty much, I think, sort of summarizes how I got to this point today. So, so that's a little bit about you, but we invited you here as part of our collaboration with the Scholar Strategy Network of Northeast Ohio. And, and part of that is because you were a grantee and working on some, some research as a part of that collaboration with SSN. So could you tell us a, a little bit more about how you came to do research in the area of criminal justice responses to domestic violence in particular? Sure. So, um, you know, I picked this project as um, my project for the SSN small grant because um, this was a project that truly came about due to my work in the community. It wasn't, you know, as, as academics, sometimes, you know, we do kind of traditional scholarship, you know, the ideas generated from, you know, looking at the literature or examining existing data, testing theories, and kind of 
coming to a project through that kind of avenue. But this this project came about completely differently. So, gosh, many years ago now, I'd say more than a decade ago, I had the opportunity to join Cuyahoga, Cuyahoga County's Domestic Violence Coordinating Council because I was lucky enough to encounter the head judge of the Cleveland Municipal Court at that time, Judge Ronald Adrian, who was the head of uh, the county's Domestic Violence Coordinating Council. He invited me to join the council. And at that time, you know, Judge Adrian has been a, a huge advocate for um, addressing criminal justice responses to domestic violence. And at the, at the time um, that this project came about, Cleveland had started a domestic violence project, um, largely under his leadership. And in a couple of the police districts within the city of Cleveland, um, they had implemented this model where they had specialized um, law enforcement units, specialized prosecutors, specialized advocates, and a dedicated domestic violence docket that was part of the Cleveland Municipal Court. And this was all put into place um, to try to address the challenges of getting domestic violence cases through the court system. Um, and, um, you know, their, their sort of anecdotal sense was that the project was successful, but they um, didn't have any sort of solid data to back up this feeling that um, this was an effective way to address domestic violence cases. Um, and they were having trouble demonstrating the value of the project in order to get the buy-in to expand the project beyond the three districts that it was existing in. And so Judge Adrian was able to acquire some funding through a justice assistance grant to hire myself and one of my colleagues, Dana Hubbard, to assess just how effective this model was um, and whether there were any changes or improvements um, that were needed to this model that could make it um, an even better way of handling domestic violence cases within the city of Cleveland. Um, so that, you know, I ended up using that project, which, you know, we collected the data for some time ago and act, and published, you know, we, we wrote a report that went to Judge Adrian and, and we published an academic article describing the results. Um, but then it was one of those sort of things, like it was like a, you know, a shelved project kind of, you know, at least from my point of view, sort of collecting dust, like, okay, that, you know, that's completed. Um, and it wasn't until I saw the, the call for applications for the small grants program that I started to kind of go back in my mind about that project, knowing some of the legislation um, that Ohio, the Ohio legislature has been looking at recently and thinking, you know, the, the findings from that project, even though we conducted that study some years ago now, actually have a lot of relevance to changes that are being considered currently. And so that was why I ended up selecting it for my SSN project. Now, I'm curious because you've had uh, quite a bit of previous work uh, on homicide, right, and how homicide is handled in the criminal justice system. How does that kind of uh, translate then to current work uh, around domestic violence and intimate partner violence? Uh, so, well, my work, my work, I feel like my work with homicide and with domestic violence um, in some ways overlap. You know, I, I serve on 
um, a number of committees uh, that have sought to sort of address both issues simultaneously. And so um, it often leads me to kind of think about the links between the two. So, um, you know, I've been serving for a number of years now on the county's domestic violence fatality review committee. And so, you know, there we're looking at at fatal incidents of domestic violence. Um, And then more recently, I was fortunate to be a local researcher on a federally funded um, demonstration initiative where they were, um, where the, actually Cleveland, I was going to say the county, but really it was Cleveland, um, was testing out the um, domestic violence high risk team model as a means of reducing intimate partner homicides in Cleveland. Um, and so, you know, my, my work in these two areas, although they start sort of really started out as separate streams in my research, uh, really seem to lately have been overlapping since there's been a lot of attention to um, addressing intimate partner violence that leads to intimate partner homicide as of late. Yeah, the, I, I'm really glad that you brought that up. I, that we're, we've spoken to uh, domestic violence folks here on the show before, and we're, uh, we've, we've talked about the link between those two and how it is not an uncommon occurrence, um, especially with other factors. Now, I, I'm curious because, so you mentioned that there was a, a judge that was really interested in this program and, and trying to find out really if it could kind of be extrapolated into uh, more settings, right? I see that as, um, now maybe that person's not a policymaker per se and that they're not a legislator, but I see that as something that's extremely policy relevant. How, how do you see your work as important to policymakers? Well, I, I will give a plug to Judge Adrian, who was always looking at seeing how, you know, through his experiences as a municipal po- court judge, you know, that he could influence policy to better improve um, responses to domestic violence in our community. Um, And and as an academic, you know, I I definitely over the years um, have increasingly seen the value of my work to policymakers. Um, And I you know, that's something that I, I talk about in my classes as well. It's, I feel like in the area of criminal justice, you know, we, we tend to do a lot of reactive responses when it comes to policymaking. Um, you know, it's oftentimes a particularly tragic or heinous event that leads to a call f- for policy changes. And, you know, Sometimes the, the, the policy changes that come out of those events end up being effective, but oftentimes, you know, they're sort of put forward in the immediate aftermath without a lot of thought given to whether that particular case is part of a more general pattern or whether it's an anomaly where the policy changes are, are not going to produce much change given the uniqueness of the case that generated the policy response in the first place. So, you know, as I, as I often say to students, if, if we really want to have an impact on policy, we have to start at the beginning, which is answering the question of what, right? So, and, and that's where I think, you know, the what and the why before we get to the you know, how do we respond? And, and that's where I really think academics can have a really important impact. Um, because, you know, if, if you really want to have a, 
an effective impact on policy, you have to start by identifying exactly uh, what the patterns are, what the trends are, and then really from there kind of building an assessment of the explanations for those patterns and trends. Because if we if we don't have a good reason for why, you know, intimate partner homicide looks the way it does or um, is changing in a particular direction, then it's unlikely that the solutions that we propose um, are going to be effective in addressing those patterns and trends. So, you know, I think academics can play a really important role in those in those first pieces and that um, we, we really need to find a way to bridge the gap between the academic research and what policymakers are doing since neither of those should really be occurring in a vacuum. I mean, if, if academics are um, doing their own research and publishing it in venues that are only going to be accessed by other academics, then we're not doing the policymakers any good. But if the policymakers aren't reaching out to the academics to draw on that information, um, you know, what can we tell them um, about the patterns, about the trends, about what we know about the causes of, you know, whatever the issues are that they're seeking to address, then they're unlikely to be successful either. So, it, you know, it, it really has to be a solid collaboration. And I feel like the needle is moving in the right direction there. Um, and, I, and I do think that, that organizations like SSN are really helping um, to make that needle move. And, and I, you know, I'm optimistic that we'll see more of that um, as, as, you know, we continue to move forward. Absolutely. Thank you for that. I, I was like, yes, keep talking. So my, my question actually is um, taking kind of that idea and then building on it for our audience of more general listeners, not necessarily academics, not necessarily policymakers, right? But to really speak to our theme of demystifying politics and policy. So while you were doing this research project, was there anything that you discovered or an aha moment where you're like, oh my goodness, this is what's taking place that we're not talking about either as policymakers, as academics, or even for the general public to be able to make sense of, right? Are there, help us, are there ways that you can help us um, demystify kind of the politics uh, or the, the kind of the policy processes of criminal justice in, in the DV spaces? Well, you know, I think um, like working on projects like this are, um, is really helpful in terms of, you know, sort of helping you take a step back and think about broader policy implications in a project that, um, you know, you, you may have set up or constructed um, with very specific goals in mind. I mean, you know, that the, the evaluation of the domestic violence project had a very narrow set of goals. Like, um, you know, we were basically doing that project because, you know, the, those who were running the project needed some evidence on, on what was going on and, and whether it was effective. But, you know, when you, when you start to sort of take that step back, and, and think sort of more broadly about, so what, you know, what are the implications here of the work I'm doing in a broader sense? It really helps, um, I think, kind of motivate you to keep up with proposed legislative changes for which, you know, maybe you have previous work that may have had relevance. You know, I think oftentimes 
we have a tendency to sort of box, you know, put boxes around projects and, and, you know, when at their completion, you know, they're literally like filed away, whether it's on your computer or literally in an old fashioned filing cabinet. But when you're interested in kind of, you know, the broader impacts of your work, I think you start to, you start to be more cognizant of the links between things that you're doing over time and the way those um, links interweave their way back into what, you know, the community or the legislative agencies or sometimes both, as was the case here. Now, I'm curious, and I think our listeners would be very curious, too. So, so you're an expert in criminology and violence, but you, you didn't, like, you weren't born with that expertise, right? <laughs> you didn't hatch out of an egg and just, I have this expertise. So how is it that you uh, go about finding, like, reliable, meaningful information? And that might be, like, prior research or just even how do you know if data is, is reliable in order to kind of build uh, that, that expertise around this topic? That's a great question. So, you know, I, I think there are, are kind of various things that go into developing that expertise. So a lot of it just comes from continually conducting your own research within a specific, specific area. So, you know, I'm someone who firmly believes that um, to develop a, a, an area of expertise, you need to both be aware of the other research that's been conducted in that area, but that you're also conducting research yourself. Um, you, you know, you raise the questions uh, about how you know whether data are reliable or not. And, and you know, that's, that is a, uh, an issue that comes up a great deal in the criminal justice or criminal criminology area, generally, good data on criminal events, criminal offenders, um, victims of crime is hard to come by. And I think to to truly get an understanding of the limitations of particular types of data for um, learning about specific issues or topics in the area really only comes from working with the data yourself. And so, you know, I think that it's very valuable to be engaged in your own research as, as well as trying to stay on top of the research that's coming out in that area. And when you're, and when you're doing your own research, I think you're motivated to try to stay on top of research that's continuing to come out in that same area. But in my case, I feel like developing um, my expertise was also very much influenced by um, staying involved in the community as well. So, you know, when you study a topic like criminal justice, right, you know, we have sort of the academic literature, but then, you know, we have all of the criminal justice agencies and community agencies, which are also working um, with the same topics and issues that we are as academics. And so, um, well, you know, through working with the, um, the community, I think you get a really great sense of, you know, how things actually work in practice, you know, so sort of that gap between how domestic violence cases are supposed to be handled through the criminal justice system 
versus um, what act- is actually happening in, um, with those cases in the criminal justice system. It's a great way of, of staying on top of emerging issues. Um, you know, as a, the landscape, it seems like um, with criminal justice responses to all types of different, different crimes uh, is constantly changing. Um, and the academic literature tends to lag behind because of the length of time it takes to write and, and submit things for publication, and then they have to be reviewed. And, and so it's a long process. So for me, like understanding locally what's happening um, with intimate partner violence in terms of, you know, the trends and the patterns, is anything changing? Are we um, identifying new issues Um, new challenges, new obstacles to criminal justice responses to those cases. Um, I hear about that through my work in the community much more than I do in the academic literature. So, you know, I think that combination is incredibly uh, valuable, right? Your expertise will only go so far if it's limited to the academic literature or your, your own research and that there's, that the community provides this um, tremendous resource from which we can really build on our level of expertise. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you there. I've, I, in my own research, I do the same. So I appreciate you saying that. Now, I, I, another thing that I'm curious about is that, I mean, as academics, our, our, our paper sometimes in our books and even, you know, our, our own uh, way of speaking is so full of jargon and technical language. Um, I mean, how do you, how do you translate that to a broader public? And especially when you're working with right findings uh, using, you know, quantitative statistical analyses that can be kind of complex. How do you go about translating that to make it kind of consumable by folks that aren't trained in that specific uh, area? I think that is a constant challenge that academics face. Um, I think probably regardless of the area that you work in, you know, there's a tendency to rely on, on the jargon. That's, you know, part of that particular area. I guess I have a few thoughts in response to that question. One is that I find teaching really helps with this. You know, when you, if you are, are presenting a topic to an undergraduate class, for example, Um, That's always a great reminder that while you may have been thinking about a particular topic or issue for years, you know, others may be hearing about it for the first time. And so, you know, how do you talk about the challenges, you know, facing uh, police or prosecutors in processing domestic violence cases? Uh, You know, how do we present that to someone who has no background in the area. So, you know, I think that's always been really helpful. But I also think that even if, you know, in, you're um, working somewhere where you're not teaching, there are always, at least in my experience, there are often opportunities around um, to speak or write for non-academic audiences. And, and I would say early on in my career, I kind of had a tendency, I think, to avoid those sorts of opportunities. And now, you know, I try to push myself kind of outside of my comfort zone and try to embrace those opportunities rather than turning away from them. So, for example, now if I have an opportunity to go to 
a non-academic conference, for example, more like a practitioner conference or, you know, in my case, you know, something like the conference that's put on by the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Like if you go there, your audience is law enforcement, not academics. Or, you know, there are often conferences that have mixtures of academics and practitioners. Um, And so I really had to learn over the years what a different kind of presentation you need when you're presenting to a non-academic audience. And the same goes for our opportunities to write for broader audiences. And I also um, am lucky that I, I have, you know, friends that I've met over the years working out in the community you know, who work uh, either in community-based organizations or criminal justice-based organizations um, who are kind enough to give me feedback on my writing as well. So if, if I'm writing something that I know is for a non-academic audience and I know it's on an area of expertise of one of my community partners, you know, I might ask them to read a little bit of it over and just say, like, And just ask those very questions, right? Like, do you see any jargon in here that doesn't make sense to you? You know, do you you see any gaps or background information that I'm missing that's needed? If you knew nothing about intimate partner violence, would this make sense to you? Right. No, and, and and sorry, I'm monopolizing here, but last last question that I had, um, how do you, I mean, in these different spaces where maybe you're talking to a judge or maybe you're talking to somebody that works at a community organization or maybe, you know, this is a practitioner that's been in this you know, state agency or something for, for 30 years, how do you stay both confident in what you know uh, in your area of expertise, but also willing to kind of listen and learn from these people and appreciate other kind of forms of expertise? Well, you know, I I think that that actually mo- by moving out into the community that that sort of followed naturally, I feel like in many ways. When when you if you participate in any kind of uh, community-based committee, particularly those that have uh, like a wide membership base, I feel like it's an educational opportunity sort of back on you. So the individuals that I've got to know over the years um, serving on these committees who work in what I would describe as sort of direct service, either, you know, criminal justice or community-based direct service, have a type of expertise that I, as as an academic, won't ever have since I'm not working in direct service. And so, you know, I, I think just, you know, surrounding your, yourself with people that are really committed to that work and engaged in it. Um, and Cuyahoga County is so fortunate to have some incredible agencies, organizations, and people that are really, really passionate about doing right by victims and um, the criminal justice process more generally. And I've, I have found that um, interacting with these individuals over the years has been incredibly humbling um, for me and, um, and, and very, very valuable. Um, they're, you know, they, they share a wealth of information. Many of them, um, as a result of their commitment and passion, 
have been doing this work for decades and, and just so, you know, being around them, being very cognizant about listening to their contributions at meetings, to their contributions to discussions and case reviews. I have learned an inordinate amount um, from just taking advantage of those kinds of opportunities. So I have a quick follow-up, actually, because I think that's fantastic in being able to be in those spaces um, as an academic that moves between kind of the, the academy and policy-relevant research, but also deeply embedded community-engaged spaces. How did you get involved um, in, in these committees? Were you invited? Did you hear about them through um, a, a, another network? Like, how did you identify these opportunities as a place to do in community-engaged work? That's a great question. And I, you know, I think it's really a matter of sort of, I don't know, and perhaps the criminal justice um, space is unique to this, but I'm suspecting it's not, you know, it was, it was getting invited just to that initial domestic violence coordinating council meeting, you know, and, and that was a council that judge Adrian was running at the time. And I met him when I was looking for a guest speaker for one of my classes. Um, and someone, you know, I said, you know, I, I, I do a component on domestic violence. And it was actually my husband who said, oh, I know someone who knows, you know, a wealth of information and is really passionate about domestic violence. It was Judge Adrian. And he made that, that introduction and Judge Adrian then um, at, at a later point invited me to the Domestic Violence Coordinating Council. And I feel like, you know, just like the one, if you're one foot in the door, if you can, if you come and, you know, really demonstrate your commitment to, you know, being part of that committee, uh, you know, it's, it's challenging as academics, you know, we have a lot of commitments on campus, which, you know, you, you kind of get this pull going on between, you know, I need to, to be on campus. I have, you know, students to see or test to grade or classes to prepare, but, but I have, you know, I have this commitment to this committee and it meets off campus and just really seeing that commitment to that committee as, as part, you know, as part of your job. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not sort of, you know, something extra or something on the side or, extraneous to my position here at Cleveland State. For me, it's, it's a central piece of my position here at Cl- Cleveland State because, you know, my, my work in the community, I hope benefits the community, but I, I know also benefits Cleveland State since it, you know, it, I make connections in the community that I can then use um, to help my students, you know, internships, uh, job opportunities. It's given me a tremendous roster of guest speakers that I can bring to campus so that students can hear directly from the folks that are in the trenches, um, you know, doing this important work. Um, and, and, you know, so it's, I think it's really a, a matter of sort of, of how you frame it in your own mind of what these, you know, community commitments are to you and to, and to your main position. And so I made sure that no matter how difficult it was to sometimes get to those meetings that I always went um, to the extent that I could 
that I um, made sure to contribute where I felt that my expertise was relevant. And I think, you know, by, by doing that, I got to know a number of individuals who were part of that committee that were working across virtually all facets of the criminal justice and victim service um, systems that exist in our county. And then, you know, the opportunities just kind of spiral from there. Um, and once, once you become kind of a, a known quantity, uh, you know, to, to the local agencies, then, the, you know, they'll start reaching out to you as, and it's not always, you know, me reaching out to them. And I also, I think another, another part of that is, you know, sh- sharing your expertise and doing work for them whenever possible, you know, so, um, and by that, I mean, like, you know, not always looking for financial compensation to, you know, help an agency with some data collection or help an agency with some data analysis or, or some other way that I can help with, with my expertise. And, you know, I think that's been really important because, you know, many of the agencies that work you know, in this particular area, the victim service agencies, for example, can often, you know, don't have the money to have data analysis on staff, often are, um, can need some assistance in that area or um, some guidance on, you know, evidence-based practices or, or suggestions um, for revising their programming. And, you know, the more that you can can give back those expertise without ex- expecting anything in return, I think also, you know, really helps build those collaborations so that when someone is writing a grant proposal, for example, that builds in data analysis, they'll think of you um, mm-hmm. because, you know, you're a known quantity. You've already, you've already worked with them. You're, ha- you know, you've um, basically donated your time to help them before. Um, and then, uh, you know, when they have a bigger project with some funding behind it, they'll they'll look to you, you know, for those kinds of roles. And, and it really does build from there. Absolutely. So I'm going to pivot, but I think it's completely related to this kind of theme of thinking about bridges be- between and within kind of areas of expertise. And so in the academy, in higher education, in the university system, <laughs> um, we organize by discipline, right? You are in sociology. I am in public affairs, Casey's in economics, right? But for the rest of the world, <laughs> you know, whether this is government agencies or community committees, right? Like the county um, council that you're talking about or the community council you're talking about, they tend to be organized around issue areas, problems uh, potentially, right? So it could be safety, economic development, housing. Given these differences, some of the things that we've heard is sometimes policymakers don't always know exactly where to go um, to identify experts, substantive experts in those areas because they, they, you know, are across a range of disciplines. So I'm really curious from your perspective, um, as someone with an expertise in, this, in, in, in criminology and, and violence, which government agencies, elected legislative bodies, so on, do you think your work speaks to? And if you had a chance to speak with a policymaker, who would it be and why? 
I, I love that question. And I, and I love the way you, you introduce that. That's, a, that's been a cro- chronic problem um, for criminologists in particular, since, you know, criminology is by its very nature an interdisciplinary um, field. And oftentimes criminologists exist in departments that aren't named criminology or criminal justice. So like when I came to Cleveland State, this was a department of sociology and we knew that folks in the community who were looking for expertise related to criminal justice or criminology were never looking in sociology because if you don't know the discipline of sociology you wouldn't know that criminology can be a sub area there and and so you know we we constantly felt like we were being missed and, and so, you know, we, uh, we spent, I spent the, the first probably half a decade that I was here trying to come up with strategies to increase the visibility of criminology within the sociology department. And ultimately, we ended up with our own major and, and then a department name change. But I think until then, I think, you know, folks in the community who were looking for an expert uh, went to the urban college um, and never and never thought of looking in a college of liberal arts and social sciences for people with expertise um, in the area of crime. And with respect to to policy, I would say that a, a great deal of policy related to criminal justice is developed at the state level. You know, certainly certainly some of it is federal, but I feel like. Um, the bulk of it, especially um, changes in policy, seem to happen a lot at the state level. And so I feel that my work would speak to, uh, well, one would be the, the Criminal Justice Committee of the Ohio House of Representatives. So I've noticed that they often have bills under consideration uh, where my research or knowledge of that research in the area would be relevant. So, for example, lately um, they have had several um, laws uh, relating to domestic violence under review. Uh, so I think HB3 is, is one of them now. So there's been several attempts to pass something that will likely be named Aisha's Law, relating to police responses to domestic violence. And then at the same time, the uh, Judiciary Committee of the Ohio Senate um, would be another possibility that I I think that's another uh, committee um, where, you know, my own work would have implications for bills that they have under consideration. Um, you know, so there, for example, they have a very important bill under consideration at the moment that seeks to make strangulation in domestic violence cases a felony. And, and this is a this is coming out of uh, is a, I think Senate Bill 90, I want to say that it is. Um, and th- this is a hugely important piece of legislation since Ohio, I think, is uh, one of maybe only two states left. Uh, that doesn't make strangulation a felony in domestic violence cases. And, there, you know, there's been um, a big push several times to get this legislation passed. And certainly 
um, my own work, both in in relation to intimate partner violence, um, but also my extensive data collection on homicides, which includes many intimate partner homicide cases. I think, um, you know, my, my research there, you, you know, could be very relevant to advocating for um, passing a bill like Senate Bill 90 and making strangulation a felony. So, you know, to answer your question, I'd be most interested in speaking um, with the chair or, or, or even just the membership um, of one of these two committees, since they, they seem to do a lot of work that directly impacts, uh, you know, what happens right here in our own community uh, with respect to criminal justice policy. Now, and, and I think this is our last question. <laughs> you had said earlier that you saw your work in the community as, as meaningful and important to Cleveland State. But I'm also curious, do you see your work, which has, I mean, as you just outlined, some of the uh, applied implications, do you see that work also as part of your own personal identity and, and, and civic identity? And if so, how? Oh, I love that question. Well, absolutely. So I believe, you know, I, I strongly believe that research and writing are a means to discovering our own civic identity. It really, um, engaging in research and scholarship and, and working in collaboration with others, both within and outside of our institutions, really provides us with an opportunity um, to reflect with other people, uh, to engage in discussion around particular issues or topics. I, I can certainly say for myself that this work has really helped develop my own capacity for empathy. So, you know, we, we develop knowledge and expertise as academics that, as I've talked about today, we can apply in our own communities to address the challenges that we see, right? Because we're we're both academics, but we're also, you know, community members and 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 citizens of our own communities. And so, you know, we we can, you know, we can see firsthand, for example, the challenges that the rising rates of violent crime that we're experiencing right now are are having um, on the citizens of our communities. And so, you know, I over the years, more and more, I've really come to feel that this is a central piece um, as of our work as academics and, you know, to really engage and embrace your commitment to making change as an academic in an area like mine that has so many applied implications and outcomes, you know, that it, you, you have to be out there, you know, you, you have to be, you know, both um, on campus in the community that it's, it's, that this job can be so much more than, you know, writing scholarly papers to build an impressive CV. It's to me, it's really become more about developing almost a sense of responsibility to give back to the community, you know, to, to advocate for the issues and to advocate for particular positions on issues that are influenced by the expertise that I've been fortunate enough to, to develop. So that we don't really exist separately 
from the communities in which our institutions of higher education are located. I mean, Cleveland State is located, you know, perfectly um, for this kind of work, right? You know, we're right on the edge of downtown and we're, we're literally right in the community. And so, you know, rather than existing alongside the community, you know, we, sh- we should be taking advantage of all the opportunities that exist to be working in collaboration um, with our, our community partners. Absolutely. This has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. We appreciate having you. Do you have any final words of wisdom for our listeners that you want to make sure they, they take away from this episode? Well, I guess, I, I, you know, I, I recently had a conversation with a pretty new academic who is an assistant professor, you know, who was sort of questioning her choice to go into academia and said, you know, she said, this was, was never what I thought I was going to do. You know, I wanted to do something relating to policy. And I said, well, those are not mutually exclusive things. You know, I said, it's, it's about, you know, finding a way in your current role where you can impact policy. And, you know, she's, as I said, she's pretty new assistant professor in a new community. I said, you know, it's, it's, you, you have to find a way to get, to get out in your community and meet those community groups and find out how your work can be helpful to them. But you, you can't, you shouldn't think of, of academia and policy as these distinct and non-overlapping realms. Cause I actually think as an academic, you can play a really important role in policy if you're a strategic uh, with how you go about it. And, and then I, I'm a center information about SSN. Cause I said, you know, it, it, I was, I've been at Cleveland state a long time and only like a year, year and a half ago, learned about SSN. And I was like, I wish, you know, that 20 years ago, this had been here. And then I, you know, I, I felt like I, I could have, uh, you know, g- got my role going earlier in terms of, you know, feeling like, you know, you can do something policy related. Um, you, you know, you, you can have an impact out there. So, so now we have the, you know, these great organizations that if you if you don't know how to do it you know you're you're uh, a newly minted phd maybe you know you you have groups like ssn who will help you get there if that's what you're looking to do so i I hope that i convinced her that you know these these are not two separate realms um and and if you can you know just um finding a way to bridge them i think will brings the most value to what you do couldn't have said it better. Thanks so much for joining us today, Wendy. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan, and with me as always is my co-host, Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio. This series is supported by the Northeast Ohio Chapter of Scholar Strategy Network. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. If you want to support the podcast, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, live chat, and swag featuring designs by donuts and coffee, head over to patreon.com slash growingdemocracyoh. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about demystifying policy-relevant research.